The first order conclusion that I come away with is the people watching this stuff already have negative views and they're finding content that seems to reinforce those and it might even make them worse. And I, I just think YouTube as a platform has to think really seriously about whether they want to facilitate that process because it seems to be working quite well. It seems to be helping those people find that kind of content and helping the creators who want to find those audiences reach them. And that seems like a terrible pairing for us to be facilitating. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 25th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. Today, we're discussing the crucial platform that often seems to slip under the radar in discussions of mis- and disinformation, YouTube. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Brendan Nyhan, a professor of government at Dartmouth College, who has just co-authored a report with the Anti-Defamation League on exposure to alternative and extremist content on YouTube. There's a common conception that YouTube acts as a radicalization engine, pushing viewers from mainstream content to increasingly radical material. But Brendan and his co-authors found a somewhat different story. YouTube may not funnel all viewers toward extreme content, but it does reliably recommend that content to users who are already viewing it. We discussed his findings and how we should understand the role that YouTube plays in the information ecosystem. Brendan's also conducted research on medical misinformation, which is newly timely as coronavirus vaccines roll out. So we also asked him about vaccine hesitancy and just how much the internet can be held responsible. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 25th. YouTube, we have a problem. Brendan, welcome back. So you've spent your career studying misperceptions about politics and health, and in some ways it must seem like the past year, with an election campaign characterized by false political campaigns in the middle of a pandemic, characterized by false political and health claims, um, is a terrible, terrible boon for your research agenda. I'm curious if there's anything that surprised you in the past year or has caused you to revisit any of your research at all. Yeah, it's really been a, a, a perfect storm, unfortunately. You know, I, I, I'd like to be put out of business the way the Sovietologists were in the late 1980s, but so far that unfortunately hasn't happened. In terms of where I've changed my mind, I, I guess I grew to fully appreciate the power of political elites to promote misinformation and to leverage it to anti-democratic ends during this campaign and in its aftermath. I think that's the most uh, striking lesson of the last year. We spent 2016 worried about obscure profit-making websites that people might have seen a few times uh, on average. And, and there's just no comparison to the president of the United States saying that the election was stolen and encouraging people to try to overturn the result of that election. It's just another level entirely. And it just reminds us uh, how powerful political elites uh, can be. And, you know, I think, I hope sharpens our thinking about where the greatest threats come from. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was really struck by a, a New York Times piece the other day on Senator Ron Johnson, basically documenting the the many, many ways that Johnson is sort of a spreader of misinformation from the integrity of the 2020 election to the origin of the English name of Greenland. <laughs> um, so it does, it does seem like media organizations are kind of catching up to that too. I do think media practices have changed quite a lot. That time story was quite direct about all the ways 
that Johnson was spreading misinformation and the harms that could be caused by someone like him promoting it, I thought it was refreshingly clear. There was no both sidesism. I hope we see more of that going forward, that the, the Trump era can help us finally dispense with some of these rituals of faux even-handedness when it comes to matters of fact, when there really aren't both sides. And the sooner we can um, move forward and, and, and you know, call out this misinformation when we see it in a clear and direct way, the better. So around the election last year, you wrote a piece for the Washington Post on common myths about misinformation. We covered some of those the last time you were on the show, and listeners should go back to listen to that episode. But I think your your arguments that first, the consumption of news from dubious websites is widespread is not actually true. Um, and second, that it's not true that we're now in a post-truth era are Ideas that may probably still surprise a lot of people. Could you talk us through why you think those claims are overblown? Sure. Yeah. So the study you mentioned, I conducted with my co-authors, Andy Guest and Jason Reifler, and we happened to be in the field with a study with a almost representative sample of Americans who gave us access to uh, their anonymized web browsing histories. So this provided unusual insight into the information people were actually exposed to instead of what they tell us they did and saw, which is often a very imperfect guide to people's media consumption. And what we found when we actually looked at people's browser histories was that the kinds of untrustworthy websites that people worried about in the aftermath of 2016 really made up quite a small percentage of Americans' media diets in the weeks before that election. Despite all of the panic, those were, uh, you know, we found we estimated about 6% of the websites that people visited uh, in the period before the 2016 election. And really, the problem was concentrated in a relatively small part of the population. As you two, of course, know, and I think as the audience knows, in 2016, especially the untrustworthy websites were especially prevalent in the media diets of conservative audiences. And it's for those 20% of Americans with the most conservative news diets, as we estimated in that study, uh, whereabouts that, that that was the source of about six in ten of the visits to these untrustworthy sites. So it really was a problem that was concentrated among a relatively small segment of the population. You know, we found uh, fewer than I think half of all Americans uh, went to any one of these websites at, at all. So it was not something that the average person was doing on any kind of a regular basis. And I think that really helps reorient our thinking. There are a number of findings like this. This is a kind of tail behavior. It's something that a relatively small group of people do a lot, uh, these kinds of consumption of misinformation across platforms. And that's a really different kind of threat model in the kind of cybersecurity jargon than the kind of median voter who's trying to make up their mind who to vote for being influenced and having their vote choice changed. Instead, we're talking about people who have heavy political consumption diets and strong preferences consuming pro-attitudinal information that seems to confirm their prior beliefs. Now, that can be problematic, and we can talk about why that's problematic, but it's a different story than the one we often think about. So when it, when it comes to the idea of, of being a, a post-truth society, I think that's a problematic conception for both an empirical reason and a normative one. Uh, empirically, there's no convincing scientific evidence that misperceptions are worse or more prevalent than in the past. They certainly spread faster communications changes have facilitated the distribution of misperceptions. They're probably more aligned with partisanship, but it's not clear that the problem is, is worse in any kind of way that we can really definitively establish. There are plenty of conspiracy theories and misperceptions if you go back to any point in American history or indeed 
uh, world history. So I think it's empirically wrong on its face, or at least unsupported. And then normatively, I think it's really problematic to say we're in a post-truth society because uh, it kind of gives up on the notion that we should be defending the norm, that people make statements that have a factual basis. And you know, we shouldn't acquiesce to that idea. We should be standing up for facts and truth to the extent that we know them and to the extent that we can. And when I see people kind of globally referring to us being post-truth, I hear a kind of acceptance of uh, a move towards a kind of informational dystopia that I think we should fight against as hard as we can. All right. So enough good news stories then. Let's pivot to video and discuss a recent study you did with some co-authors about extremist content on YouTube, which I think actually has a little bit of an overlap with the ideas that you were just sort of laying out about the the threat model, perhaps. So why don't you talk us through your findings in, in that study first? Yeah, so the the Anti-Defamation League report that my co-authors and I uh, released maps quite straightforwardly to uh, the previous findings in the 2016 campaign that I was speaking about a moment ago. Again, we find a relatively small proportion of people consuming most of the problematic content. So in this case, we recruited uh, over 900 people out of a 4,000 person uh, sample uh, assembled by uh, the online survey company YouGov. So we recruited over 900 of those folks to install a browser extension that let us see what YouTube videos they were watching on their desktop or laptop computers to try to understand the extent to which people are seeing potentially harmful content on YouTube the way many people have worried. And just and, and it, as I mentioned, in 2016, we found 20% of the people consuming almost 60% of the, you know, the views on harmful websites. Here we found 11% of users uh, were responsible for 80% of the views of alternative videos. So this is category of channels that we identified based on prior research and subject matter expert classifications that were potential gateways to harmful content. And then there was even more concentration in the actual extremist uh, channels that we saw people watching videos from. Uh, So really small parts of the population as best we can measure it uh, were responsible for the overwhelming majority of the consumption of this, this kind of content. So if I can just back up, though, for one second and say what we did was we measured exposure to two kinds of videos, these alternative videos that we thought were potential gateways to potentially harmful content. And then these extremist videos, so videos from extremist channels that academics and subject matter experts had identified as being white supremacist or hateful or otherwise harmful. Um, And we found about two in 10 of our participants visited at least one alternative video a little less than one in 10 of our participants watch at least one video from an extremist channel. But the people who did consume this stuff consumed a lot. Okay, So if you watch among the people who saw one alternative video, the mean number of alternative videos they saw was 64. If you watched an extremist video among that set, the mean number of extremist videos watched was 11.5. So the people who are doing this stuff are doing a lot. It's just a small percentage of the population. Right. So that sounds pretty bad and damning and and 
concerning. One of the things that's interesting to unpack is the role of YouTube specifically and, and how its architecture works or, you know, does or does not exacerbate this problem. And and on that, there were two things that really stood out to me in, in your findings. So the first was that more than 90% of the views on videos on these two categories, alternate and extremist channels, were from people with high levels of racial resentment and that recommendations to videos from alternative and extremist channels are exceptionally rare when people are watching videos from other channels. So they made up fewer than 2% of the suggestions uh, seen by your, your participants in those cases. So as you've put it elsewhere, YouTube does not appear to be sending innocent cat video watchers down a white supremacist rabbit hole, but it is giving people who are already watching this kind of content more of it. And so I guess my question is, how much of this is really a story about YouTube and how much of it is really a story about user preferences? So, I mean, like if I'm a white supremacist and I go to the library and check out books about white supremacy and I, and, and I find them really affirming, then probably next time I go back to the library, I'm going to get more of them and they are conveniently arranged for me through the Dewey Decibel system so that I can find them quite easily. What do you think about YouTube's role here and, and what interventions should they be making given your findings? Yeah, that's a tricky question. I, I, I do, you know, want to echo the point you've made. It's not, our findings are not consistent with a simple rabbit hole narrative of the sort that we've heard a lot over the last few years. There was an idea that people really were watching cat videos and falling down a rabbit hole into white supremacist videos. And so far, our findings are not consistent with that narrative. Um, both when it comes to the prevalence of high racial resentment among the people who are watching this, these kinds of potentially harmful content, and when it comes to the recommendations that are being shown and that, you know, the lack of recommendations to these kinds of channels when people are watching other content. So in that sense, it does seem to at least suggest that the prior critiques of YouTube were either incorrect or YouTube has changed the status quo over the years in response to criticism in a way that what people were previously observing is no longer the case. We can't distinguish between those explanations. Our data are only from 2020, and we know YouTube's made quite a lot of changes in this respect. So it, it, it may have been worse in the past, but let's let's take it as it exists today, or at least as we could observe it during our study in, in, in 2020. The question then is how much responsibility does YouTube bear? And, you know, it's a complicated question. I mean, as with so many of the questions around um, social media platforms that you engage with on this podcast, a lot of it has to do with values and principles that are really outside of scientific adjudication. Do we think a platform has, I don't want to say responsibility, but should be open to anyone who wants to set up shop there to potentially monetize their content? And even if they can't monetize it, to have a subscription functionality and a whole series of ways of distributing their content and building an audience. We think everyone should have access to that. Right. And I don't think we do. And so we started to draw lines. Right. YouTube has started to remove some of the worst of the worst channels from the platform. But we found among those channels that have been identified as potentially harmful, the vast majority are still active. So my reading of our data is YouTube has not gone very far in how it's partitioning that set of, of, of videos to say where that line might be. In particular, something like the subscription functionality on YouTube, which we can't rule out as a source of some of the recommendations to these alternative and extremist channels when they exist. Right? It may be that it's not, it's not an algorithmic recommendation based on what the 
you know, YouTube's machine learning thinks you'll like per se, it's that you've actually subscribed to that particular channel's videos. And so they're being surfaced to you. But nonetheless, that's a part of the platform architecture. YouTube owns that. It built that. And it's letting people use it, right? And it's, it's helping audiences find and connect with that content. So they are not innocent of responsibility for that process. And, and I guess I, I, I don't have the same feelings about that than I do about something like deplatforming elected leaders, which seems like in a democracy, like something that we should be extremely circumspect about. Offensive talk shows, facilitating them attracting an audience just doesn't strike me as a first order, small D democratic concern. If you're distributing hateful content, I'm not sure YouTube has any responsibility to provide a, a hosting function for you. And, and of course they can go elsewhere, right? That, that'll be one of the responses people offer. But we know that frictions are, are powerful um, and that big platforms really do help, you know, figures like the kind we've seen rise on YouTube attract large audiences. So it strikes me that a lot more could be done here. And I'm struck by something that Evelyn in particular has pointed out over and over again, which is the lack of scrutiny to YouTube. The platform is overwhelming in its scale. The videos are so long and the kinds of people who write about the media don't seem to watch much YouTube, um, to be honest, compared to Twitter and Facebook. And so they just escape scrutiny again and again. But it seems like all the platforms have more to do, but it certainly seems like YouTube has done the least and, and nonetheless received the least scrutiny over the last few years. Thank you, Brendan. I, you know, the the covert motive here is that you 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 are a guest on this show as part of my Get Wojcicki to the Hill 2021 campaign. Um, and indeed, you know, the day that this podcast will be airing, Congress is having yet another hearing that is being billed as a hearing with tech CEOs and Google, Facebook, and Twitter will be there. But yet again, somehow Susan Wojcicki will be a- absent. And you know, people there are probably a bunch of listeners going, "Who the hell is Susan Wojcicki?" Which only furthers my point. Wojcicki is the CEO. CEO of YouTube, uh, and somehow she has avoided being hauled to the hill. But as you're laying out, that's not necessarily justified given that it has all of these same problems that we are seeing in all of the other areas of our media ecosystem. And certainly there's no question that Jack Dorsey should be asked and and have to answer that that she shouldn't. I guess I'm curious, sort of, one of the one of the speculations that I have is that you know YouTube likes to to keep its head down and let the other platforms take the heat, and that it's often much harder to study for researchers. So you know, for example, a, a recent analysis of papers submitted to the International Communication Association's annual conference found that there were twenty eight papers on Google or YouTube, compared to forty one for Facebook and fifty one for Twitter, uh, which means there were t- nearly twice as many papers on Twitter as YouTube, despite having about fifteen percent of the users. Base. And yet here you are with a, with a you know comprehensive um, and important study on YouTube. And so I'm curious why you think that there's that gap in the research as well. Was it was it much harder to do this kind of research that you did? You know, it's interesting. You know, there are people studying YouTube on the computer science side in in a way that's not unlike many of the Twitter studies we've seen. You plug into an API, you pull down some data on some videos and how many counts they have and maybe some transcripts. I think the challenge with all of these platforms is going from the what you can think of as a, as a supply side to the demand side. When we simply say, well, these videos exist on YouTube, the question is, well, who's seeing them, right? And how many are they watching, right? It's only when we move to that side that we can really understand the nature of the problem or you know the extent to which there is one, right? So just like in, in the Facebook 
case we were talking about with the kinds of untrustworthy websites that thrived on Facebook in 2016, I couldn't see into 2016, uh, into Facebook's data in 2016, but we could see who was visiting those sites and assess the nature of the problem uh, from our data. And similarly here, we're able to take that instead of just simply saying, well, there are recommendations, we see recommendations happening, we see view counts going up, it seems like something's going on, maybe people are falling down rabbit holes, we can actually move to the demand side and look at who's being exposed to this stuff, you know, what are their characteristics, what are the patterns of consumption? And that is hard for all of the platforms. I'm not sure how, you know, there's pros and cons to each of them. Facebook's probably the hardest to study, but this study was not trivial. This study was really hard. I mean, we had to, it cost a great deal of money. We still weren't able to put together a fully nationally representative sample. We don't have data on mobile consumption. There are lots of limitations and it's very hard outside of these platforms to study any of them. But in terms of what makes YouTube hard, I do think as we get better at text analysis, we'll start to do better with YouTube. I think there's, it's almost overwhelming the amount of uh, data that you can get from YouTube and how you make sense of these long transcripts of videos from the kinds of channels we're talking about. That's a heavy lift. You know, something like counting links to particular kinds of sites in tweets or public posts on Facebook is a much more tractable kind of research problem than characterizing 10,000 words of automated transcript, right? Where you have to clean it up, you have to figure out how to categorize it, and the list goes on and on. And so, again, I think we've kind of punted on, on a lot of that. But I take seriously the idea that we should at least worry about YouTube being different. I'm not sure it is, but people have made arguments to me that, that suggest we should take it seriously. So the video might be different, right? We think video might be more powerful in, in influencing people. People may have a more uh, have what's called a parasocial relationship with these influencers whose videos they watch over and over again. And then simply the sheer amount of time that people spend on YouTube, which is really striking in you know, the survey data and, and the behavioral data, especially in the tails, the amount, the, just a sheer number of hours people are spending on YouTube. All those reasons suggest that you know, whatever, whatever the challenges of studying YouTube that we need to invest the effort and do more because at least some people are consuming a ton of this, a ton. And we should really know what they're seeing and what effect it might be having on them. Yeah, I want to dig into that a little more. I mean, to, to put it bluntly, from from your study, what are people doing on YouTube? I, I think that one of the reasons I that Twitter plays such an outsized role in the discourse about platforms, I think, is that you know lots of academics and journalists use Twitter. Uh, I think of YouTube as a province more of the youngs, um, and frankly, will admit that I have way less of a sense of what goes on there and what the sort of big cultural movements are. So you're you're focusing on the study in this extremist content and what you call alternative content, but was that what a majority of people were watching? Is it mostly cat videos? <laughs> what did you find? You know, we haven't broken it down that far. And this this just shows you the challenge. Establishing ground truth, even at the channel level of what is this content, is a really non-trivial problem. So I talked about the, the, the challenge of transcripts, but, you know, that might be at the sentence or paragraph level. Now come up to the video level, and then you have to go up another level to the channel level. So to make this feasible, given the number of videos people are watching, we're working here at the channel level and putting together the most comprehensive set of channel level categorizations we could find 
knowing that within each of those channels are videos that are more or less uh, harmful, right? There might be a, a video about football from a, a channel that's been identified as extremist. They might never say anything offensive in that particular video. So what we're recording in our data is simply that channel level classification. This is a video from a channel that's been identified as promoting harmful content. There is no kind of enumeration of the content types uh, across all of these channels, let alone all of these videos, let alone the particular clips within each of these videos, because some of them are so long, people may only watch small snippets and parts, right? So I think, you know, YouTube is very hard to characterize in that sense because there's so much content on there. People are, are Googling, like, how do I fix my, you know, my leaky faucet? And they're watching cat videos and they're watching influencers and, you know, 500,000, you know, so many other things too. It's just, it almost resists generalization. Um, and so we, we kind of tried to be laser focused on what we thought of as, as the use case that was potentially the most harmful, right? So the worst content and stories about how it could have a particularly damaging effect. Again, if it was sucking these people in who were kind of innocent and it was feeding them recommendations that were driving them towards this kind of content. And we didn't find that, but I, I want to go back to the point that Evelyn mentioned earlier and just underscore this point about racial resentment and, and explain it a little bit more because it's important. One of the unique aspects of this study is we were able to use racial resentment measured not just in our survey when we recruited the participants, but racial resentment from a survey they took sev uh, a couple of years before. And so what that means is we at least have the, we have a kind of prior measure of racial resentment that's at least not influenced by the videos they've been watching in the months leading up to or after the survey that brought them to our, into our study. Okay, so we have this kind of prior measure of racial resentment. And what we see is using the standard measure of racial resentment, which is commonly used in, in political science, and you can find if you Google it online, this survey measure, we find, as Evelyn said, almost all the exposure to this kind of content is coming from people who score in the top third of our sample in terms of their expressed levels of racial resentment. So the story that tells about YouTube is not a rabbit hole story. It's instead a story about demand meeting supply in a sense, that there are people who have negative views about race, often they have negative views about gender too, who are out there. There's this kind of latent audience for this kind of content that's, you know, thankfully poorly served by many forms of traditional media, not always, but, you know, to a greater extent than YouTube right now, right? And YouTube provides a space where people who provide that kind of content can find that receptive audience. Now, it is possible, and we can't rule out that people become more extreme, even if they already had high levels of racial resentment after watching these videos. Our study doesn't allow us to, to characterize those kinds of effects. It's certainly possible. But the, the first order conclusion that I come away with is the people watching this stuff already have negative views and they're finding content that seems to reinforce those. And it might even make them worse. And I, I just think YouTube as a platform has to think really seriously about whether they want to facilitate that process because it seems to be working quite well. It seems to be helping those people find that kind of content and helping the creators who want to find those audiences reach them. And that seems like a terrible pairing for us to be facilitating. So you you talk about this as an issue of supply and demand. What should, in your view, YouTube be doing about that dynamic of supply and demand? If it can if it can't quench the demand, should it be limiting the supply? How aggressively should it be doing so? So 
it's, it's very hard to assess content moderation from the outside. And I have not done a kind of uh, the lawyerly reading of their um, policies that, you know, that our, our, our gracious host could probably provide. But I, I suspect that more lines could be drawn more sharply, that YouTube could be more aggressive at policing content on this margin where people are really pushing into potentially harmful kinds of content. And they've said that they're taking action against uh, so-called borderline content that doesn't, strictly speaking, violate their policies in their judgment, but comes close enough to be worrisome that they're deprioritizing that kind of content. Uh, but again, it seems like more could be done. I think it would be reasonable to think about withdrawing monetization more broadly for um, content that's coming closer to these lines or removing subscription functionality or other kinds of intermediate steps. I think one problem in, in, in content moderation discussions is we think in binary terms, deplatform or nothing. And there certainly are cases where deplatforming is appropriate, but there's a whole spectrum of options between those two extremes. And it seems like YouTube could do more between them. And it's going to take external stakeholders holding them accountable publicly to get action. I mean, the thing we've seen again and again with the platforms is the only thing that moves the needle on policies like these is external scrutiny. And unfortunately, it's highly imperfect and slow. I mean, this kind of research takes a long time and a lot of money and it isn't produced very frequently. It's just very hard to watchdog the platforms from the outside. And I, I worry that we'll get a few more kind of Band-Aid solutions and then this will kind of go away again. And everyone will keep saying, boy, no one's talking about YouTube again in six months. And then some, the next report will come out and we'll go, oh, man, it's still really bad. And then we'll, you know, we'll go through this cycle. And now we're all old enough to have done a few of these cycles with all of the platforms. And I just wish we could have a more systematic conversation that didn't just have this kind of uh, Groundhog Day aspect of report, Band-Aid, everyone forgets about it and repeat. Brendan just dropping spoilers for my Twitter feed for the next six months. <laughs> That's basically a summary of what I'm going to be doing, I guess. And I'm yet to meet a, a content moderation policy that I haven't given a loyally reading to. So yes, that uh, that basically sums it up. I think, like, I just want to basically underscore everything that you just said. It is so impossible to tell from the outside how effective any of this is or how much even of a problem it is. You know, like YouTube gives us some fantastic press releases about how they're really reducing the recommendations of borderline content and, and, and things like that. And it all, you know, sounds dandy, but we, we can't tell at all if, it, if it's doing anything. And I, and I also think that your point about moving beyond the binary of just take down, leave up is by far much more promising. And the point about monetization just seems like such an obvious one. Like if a platform is making money or, you know, g giving money to producers of content, surely their responsibility for that content has to be greater than if they're sort of simply, and I mean, simply hosting, I say, like there's still some sort of responsibility you would think, but, but surely once money starts coming in, we can think more seriously about that. And your point about they basically only respond to external scrutiny is is sadly so true. And so much of this is about them managing their image in the public sphere. And in light of that, I'm wondering if you've had any pushback on your findings of the report here. Has there been any sort of contestation of what you've what you found? 
You know, it's interesting that, you know, Google gave a kind of perfunctory quote, you know, objecting or disagreeing uh, to the initial news report about our, our findings in, in USA Today. And, and so far, we haven't heard that much more. You know, we actually had good conversations with folks there, um, sometimes contentious, but ultimately productive for the report. And that were informative to us and helped us make the report better, uh, facilitated by our partners at, at the Anti-Defamation League who work with YouTube quite a lot. So I think in, in some ways, while that wasn't always, you know, the friendliest uh, set of exchanges, it ultimately made the report better and provided a kind of accountability. So I think that kind of, there's not just the stakeholder who says, do more anecdote, 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 but the, 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 the stakeholder who can be an honest broker between the platform and external researchers and facilitate that exchange that might not otherwise happen, right? I can't get meetings with vice presidents at Google, uh, but ADL can. Right. I think that model is quite powerful and ADL's visibility helped bring our report to policymakers in an important way. So we were talking before we started recording about how, you know, the chair of the Commerce Committee sent a set of questions to the CEO of Google uh, about YouTube in a letter that cited our report a number of times. So in, in many cases, you know, while, you know, Wojcicki to the Hill isn't a perfect solution either, it may be that there are other ways to get the kind of information we want that aren't possible for external researchers. You know, if you're testifying under oath, if you're, if information is subpoenaed, you know, that's going to bring some visibility to, to things that um, maybe are hard for us to study or observe. So, you know, I'm hopeful there's different mechanisms that can move this conversation forward, but, you know, there does need to be a kind of broader social conversation about you know, these questions. And, you know, I, I find myself in an interesting position. I'm curious what both of you think. I'm someone who's been very circumspect about political conversation on Facebook being heavily moderated, that people kind of blithely uh, want Facebook to be the kind of global truth police. And I've asked people to reflect on whether we want to outsource that much responsibility over political speech to one private company. And I really do stand by those arguments. I think we really do need to take that idea seriously and be really careful about how much power we're willing to give to unaccountable third parties. At the same time, in, in a domain like quasi-entertainment and monetized video content with YouTube, it seems like we haven't gone far enough. And so I'm, I'm kind of struggling to hold this all together in my own mind, but it highlights at least the need for some fairly subtle conversations about what appropriate norms and boundaries are. And I, I don't think we're there yet or even close to it. I still hear so much uh, super simplistic, polarized shouting about free speech and 230 versus like get rid of the bad stuff and 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 so little nuance between those kinds of, of arguments. No, I think I, I completely agree with, with basically everything you just said. First, on the need to have a much broader conversation. I mean, something that we've been guilty of in this conversation so far, but I think of all of us in our work trying to do is, you know, situate like the online ecosystem in the broader media ecosystem in general. Like it's, it's very artificial to talk about these platforms as if they don't exist in the world and all of the other forces that, that operate around them, but also the need for a much more subtle conversation between get rid of the bad stuff and leave the good stuff. And I think, you know, when it comes to political mis and disinformation, I think we do need to be a lot more sort of careful and sort of nuanced around it. I'm sort of struck, and I know that you've written about this too, struck by the idea that, you know, when platforms came out 
really boldly at the start of the pandemic and for the first time said, we will remove information simply because it's false in the context of this global public health emergency because of the risk to people's lives. And one of the reasons why they said they would be able to do that is because they could point to more readily point to authoritative sources of information. Now, the past year has shown the difficulty of defining authoritative sources of information, which of course we could have told them at the time, but it is at least somewhat more true that there are authoritative public health bodies in a way that there isn't necessarily in politics. But at the same time, there was this like flood of stories in the weeks following those announcements that said, hey, you're doing this in the context of the pandemic. Why don't you do this all the time and everywhere? And I think that that's actually a very different conversation on how to deal with false claims in sort of a health context and in a political context. And that we should, you know, that I think we are still running towards that world. And I kind of also want to sort of pause and say, hold on a second. But I mean, I, I you are literally, you know, you, you study health and, and, and politics communications. So, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that distinction. Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great point, And it's a real conundrum. So I, 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 I did write about this as well. Sarah Krebs and I wrote a foreign affairs article saying how impressive it was that the platforms were moving so aggressively against COVID misinformation, but we should be careful about the idea that they can or should apply a similar approach to political misinformation, right? That this was a kind of special circumstance, that this fell into the kinds of direct um, threats to human life that the platforms have always carved out. And what we've seen is we've seen that gray area between those two kinds of misinformation get filled in over the last year. That there are a lot of cases that straddle the line between misinfo- misinformation that is political in nature and that we should address through more speech on the one hand, but also potentially threatening to your health. Right? When the president of the United States makes a political statement that also misleads you about the medical benefits of a particular treatment, right? which category does that fall into? And I'm not sure we fully sorted that out. I think the, the, in the context of a, a global pandemic, erring on the side of caution in some of these cases, again, where the threats are, are quite direct is, is appropriate. But yeah, I do worry about uh, slip sliding towards a world where we're trying to police political speech. I mean, the obvious uh, case here is the deplatforming of Trump and the oversight board case, you know, evaluating that decision. And that's a very complicated question in lots of ways. But and ultimately it was it was political misinformation and encouragement of the efforts to overturn the election that uh, led to deplatforming, not health misinformation. But nonetheless, it is a kind of important precedent here of how far the platforms are willing to go when it comes to political leaders. And I guess to me, I think that was a justified decision, but it's the kind of thing that, boy, we should be so incredibly cautious about that being a routine or common thing. So I'm, I'm more worried about the precedent it's set than the act itself. And that's, that's, I think, the line we're going to straddle, right? The next time there are five misleading or false statements made by a president, does the other side say, now you have to deplatform them, right? And, you know, that could be terrible in a democracy where, you know, we live with false speech. We live with false political speech, especially in this country with the First Amendment. Yeah, these dilemmas are, 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 are so challenging. Yeah, I think that, you know, you say, or, you know, the next time that a president 
spews out a few falsehoods, are there going to be cries to deplatform them? I I am a hundred percent sure that that would happen if Joe Biden, you know, said some things that weren't true at a press conference. Which I think gets to a point you were making earlier about the sort of the the slipperiness of YouTube as an enter place for entertainment, Facebook as a place where politics are discussed and how we moderate those different things, like. Part of Trumpism is politics as entertainment and entertainment as politics. And so it all becomes, you know, one enormous roiling culture war where I think the the lines are not clear and the the platforms have to grapple with that. And it's it's not easy. But so but before we let you go, I I do want to make sure we we get to vaccines and vaccine hesitancy and how the platforms are addressing that. So first off, I think it would be useful to set some groundwork and then and then we'll ask you about the specific role of the internet. So to begin with, how widespread is vaccine hesitancy or you know false beliefs about the vaccine? How big is the problem actually? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think this is an area where people's mental models are are off. And actually in, in a way that's not unlike some of the cases we've talked about before. If you look at childhood vaccination rates in this country, they're very high. There's a reason we don't have measles running rampant now. Unfortunately, it's come back a little bit, but nothing like 100 years ago, right? Or take your communicable disease of choice that we vaccinate against. We have quite uh, remarkable uh, levels of childhood immunization. Should they be higher? Yes. Could they be higher? Yes. But we're still in a point where, you know, when it gets, when we get up to school entry, 90 plus percent of parents are vaccinating their children, right? So um, when it comes to the actual decision, the actual behavior, People are not as anti-vaccine as 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 I think uh, Americans often think, and I worry that that is in part a reflection of the visibility of the anti-vaccine movement and the salience it's had both in media coverage of the issue and on social media. So that story now now that and let me just add one one point to that: the fact that we're talking about relatively few people foregoing vaccination for their children does not mean that people don't have misconceptions about vaccines. So there's a broader group of people who are sometimes characterized as hesitant, who have concerns, hesitations. They may have false beliefs about the safety or efficacy of vaccines. Now, when it comes to parents, they're ultimately almost always vaccinating their kids. Thank goodness. But those false beliefs are out there um, and they may hinder other kinds of immunization decisions, like, for instance, the flu shot where we don't do nearly as well as we could in the general year. And we're, we're often in the 60-ish percent range when it comes to adults. So that's the, the context in which this COVID vaccine is rolling out. We have a, you know, a population that overwhelmingly vaccinates their children, but there are you know as many as 25% or more in some cases of Americans who will endorse various myths about vaccines and who may have some kind of hesitation out there. And then there's there's broader kinds of distrust of of the medical system and uh, historic patterns of um, discrimination and injustice that may cause people to hesitate. And you put all that together, and you do really have a a challenging environment in one where COVID vaccine hesitancy is about to become a first order public health problem. It's not yet, but we will move through the willing vaccinators in the next few months, and now then we're really going to have to start to confront this problem head on. And so, so to go back to the point we were talking about earlier about situating this in the broader media environment, I think it's fair to say in sort of 
mainstream discourse or a lot of the the sort of news that I read about this the, the fingers are pointed at the internet the idea that misinformation about the vaccines online is driving conspiracy theories or you know conspiracy theories are looking for this misinformation for their next you know hot hit and that that is what is undermining the the trust in in vaccines so is this an internet problem I, d- I don't think it is. I don't know of any convincing evidence that it is. To me, this looks like a case where what's happening in society is being refracted back to us through social media. That's where anti-vaccine activism is most visible. And you can go, as people have, and count how many anti-vaccine groups there are on Facebook and the anti-vaccine websites you can find in Google. And a lot of that is concerning. But when my co-authors and I actually looked at a similar kind of web browsing sample of the sort that I described earlier, and looked at what uh, web pages people were going to related to vaccines and whether they were skeptical of uh, the safety and efficacy of of vaccines or not, we found people saw very little vaccine-related content altogether. Now, we couldn't see what they were seeing on on Facebook, but at least when it came to web browsing, they were seeing very little vaccine-related content. And what they saw was largely not skeptical about vaccines, safety, or efficacy. Um, So there was no clear story there in terms of what people were seeing. The temporal trends don't really line up either. We see vaccine exemption rates take off as parents kind of organize to lobby uh, for looser rules in the aftermath of the false uh, claims about autism and so forth in the early 90s and uh, late 90s and early aughts, which really predates the rise of social media. And I think the anecdote that really drives this home to me is that if you recall the teenager who testified before Congress about how his mother didn't vaccinate him and how she saw so much anti-vaccine misinformation on YouTube. And it was presented as this kind of smoking gun. Here's this teenager. He's not vaccinated. Facebook's to blame. Listen to these stories about what his mother's been reading on Facebook. The kid was 18 years old. When his mother didn't vaccinate him, Was Mark Zuckerberg was like 12. <laughs> like There was no way that Facebook was responsible for this child not being vaccinated. Right Now, his mother may have found anti-vaccine content that reinforced her views later on, but the timing just didn't line up. So, you know, there's certainly the potential for harm. There's certainly reasons to worry, but I, I don't think it's driving the phenomenon. We've always had vaccine hesitancy. And, uh, you know, when it comes now, now fast forward to the present day, when it comes to uh, COVID uh, in particular, we're seeing the platforms be quite aggressive as we've talked about. And that includes discussions about vaccines. That's where some of their they're applying some of their strictest content moderation standards. It doesn't mean they catch everything, but there's no clear story here about how the internet or social media are driving the problem. I think social mistrust is driving the problem. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have access problems just being reached uh, to get the vaccine. But uh, among those people who are distrustful, they have political or cultural or social reasons to be distrustful. And it, it doesn't seem to be a kind of internet fueled phenomenon. So you've written about how to build trust in the vaccine. What are the main things that the public, the media, politicians need to do to build that trust? And how feasible are they? You know, I'm pretty optimistic about this one. You know, it's going to sound out of place in this conversation, which has been relentlessly grim, I think, at times. But I am optimistic about building trust in in this vaccine. I think this rollout, as challenging as it's been, gives us an opportunity for people to see people around them get vaccinated, to see the benefits of vaccination, to hear more and more time after time, day after day, week after week, about how everyone else is getting vaccinated, about how it's safe and effective, 
and, and to have that touch every part of our society. As that goes along, I hope that the social norms around vaccination just continue to build and strengthen. This is something we do to protect not just ourselves, but each other, our friends and family, our neighbors, the people we work with. And as people encounter that kind of a message in all these different contexts, I think it's going to help those people who are on the fence to go ahead and, and take that step. They may not be rushing to be first in line, but as more and more of the people around them get vaccinated and more and more people around them expect them to be vaccinated, I think it can work. So strategies that you can uh, use, I think it's really important to depoliticize this issue and to speak uh, to people through trusted sources. So, you know, Joe Biden should not be in front on this issue. It's great that Donald Trump endorsed the, the vaccine on Fox, for instance. That's fantastic. We need people from every community um, speaking out to people in their community who trust them. So religious leaders, community group leaders, the principals of the various schools talking to the parents about themselves. And then once the authorizations are there, getting their kids vaccinated too. All these people who have these relationships of trust, healthcare providers, right? Every, healthcare providers, parents say, for children at least, for pediatric vaccines, they say their, health, their, their child's healthcare provider is their most trusted source of vaccine information. So every time people are dealing with the health system, they need to be hearing how important it is to get vaccinated. Anthony Fauci, people love Anthony Fauci. Um, there are very few people we can agree on. It's probably Oprah and Anthony Fauci, right? And there's, there are studies that show he's, he, in, in one poll I saw, he was rated as more trusted that, than the CDC itself. Okay, so there are opportunities, I think, to put those kinds of people forward and, and, and then those local and trusted community leaders forward and to avoid those folks who are, who are polarizing and to avoid those kinds of divisive cultural meanings. And, and this can be really important because as the rollout continues, these differentials could get sharper, right? As everyone, not everyone, as many people in certain groups that have been more pro-vaccine so far, as we move through those populations, right? You can imagine group-based kinds of backlashes. Why won't those people get vaccinated, right? So right now, Republicans are expressing at least less intent to get vaccinated in some surveys, although findings vary on whether they're actually following through on that. It would be terrible if that became a matter of contention between the parties. We need people like Mitch McConnell coming forward and saying everyone should get vaccinated. You know, we need Donald Trump saying everyone should get vaccinated. We need, you know, Republican governors at the state level calling on people to come forward and get vaccinated. And I'm hopeful that they will. I mean, the incentives are in alignment here. Religious groups that want to get back together and meet in person need to be able to do so without putting their worshipers at risk. Community groups that want to get together, athletic groups that want to get together, right? Every aspect of our society will benefit. So I, I'm hopeful that people in positions of authority and trust can mobilize their communities, you know, to, to help us get over the hump on this. It's going to take time. It's not going to be easy, but I, I, I am optimistic. And I do think in six months, there will still be some holdouts, but hopefully fewer than people are expecting right now. As you know, grim is kind of our brand. So I'll, I'll give you a chance to walk back that, that note of optimism. <laughs> um, you spent a lot of the past year tweeting out news stories saying, you know, what would you say if you saw this story about the United States in another country and how we're in a, a democratic emergency? I think many people have breathed a, a big sigh of relief about the Biden administration should we be so sanguine? What are you watching over you know, the next few months, the next year as sort of signs about what direction democracy in the U.S. is headed? Yeah, it's a great question. 
I do worry that we could drop the ball. I think we've alluded to this a couple of times in, in this conversation, but there's a way in which the normalcy of the Biden administration, for better or for worse, whatever you think of Joe Biden, it's just not, it's a different category entirely than the Trump administration when it comes to respecting democratic norms, for instance. I, I worry that people will, will miss what's happening in two respects that I think is, is quite worrisome. The first is whether people with Trumpist views of democracy start to take over the Republican Party up and down the ticket. We haven't seen that happen yet, but there are signs that the people who oppose Trump's attempts to overturn the election or who are uncomfortable with his norm violations, et cetera, are opting out, are retiring early, leaving Congress, et cetera, and that people who embrace those kinds of tactics are opting in, are going to run in primaries, declare their candidacies, stay in office, et cetera. And that turnover, that takeover of the party, that full takeover of the party, which people talk about, you know, it actually hadn't happened yet, right? Trump, everyone bent the knee to Trump, but that's a different matter than driving out the institutionalists entirely and the Trumpists taking over in a more systematic way. So that process of candidate entry and exit that I think is starting to happen is to me deeply worrisome because the people who have been entering maybe people who, for instance, reject the legitimacy of the 2020 election and might do the same or worse in the future. And that, 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 that fear intersects with my, my concern about what's going to happen to election administration in this country. We still have partisan officials responsible for election administration in our complex decentralized system. We've largely avoided the worst problems kind of amazingly, 2020 went remarkably well. And to their great credit, to their undying eternal credit, people in places like Georgia and Arizona stood up for the integrity of the election and uh, you know, ignored the partisan incentives to do otherwise. But we're seeing, for instance, in Georgia, the Secretary of State facing two Republican challengers who are attacking uh, him for not stopping non-existent voter fraud and not defending the, quote, integrity of the election. You know, what happens in 2024 if those folks are responsible for the administration of the election? We have a system that's quite permeable to people like that getting into positions of authority. What happens if the canvassing boards that have to certify election results do something different? What if those members of Congress uh, have a majority in the House who voted against certifying Joe Biden's victory? We're not that far from the precipice if this these kinds of patterns continue. I'm deeply worried about that process happening. It's going to be a kind of below the radar story because it's mostly a state and local story and it's about candidate entry and exit. It's not a first order story. We're going to be, you know, people are going to be yelling about Joe Biden falling on the steps and the border and, and those kinds of things. But in the meantime, this is what's going to remake one of our two major parties potentially and the process by which we determine who holds power. And you know, the stakes are as high as they could possibly be. So I am quite worried there. The jury is still out. It's too early to know definitively where those, how those questions will be resolved. But I'm not optimistic about what I've seen, even in the last couple of months. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, unfortunately. And I'll, I'll thank you for allowing us to have a pessimistic closeout, which is much, much more our, our preferred mood. <laughs> this is why we're fun apart. Exactly. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. <laughs>